Welcome to the Iron Thread Village podcast, everyone. I'm Zach Richards, and in our second podcast, I will be discussing environmentalism in religion, which includes a review of the five mindfulness trainings and what it means to be an earth holder. A word of caution before we proceed. In addition to many factual statements, I also offer up shades of my own opinions. Please keep in mind that these opinions are a story that I have created in my own mind, and by no means do I believe that anyone should incorporate these opinions as their own. You are certainly welcome to flat out disregard everything that I have to say here in this podcast. Opinions, even if they aren't real, can be fun. Are we ready? On with the show. Now, the five mindfulness trainings were originally known as the five precepts, or in the Pali language, Panchasila. Pancha, meaning five, and sila, meaning an internal, aware, and intentional ethical behavior. The five precepts constitute the basic code of ethics undertaken by lay followers of Buddhism. Within the Buddhist doctrine, they are meant to develop mind and character to make progress on the path to enlightenment. The five precepts were common to the religious milieu of the 6th century BC India, but the Buddha's focus on awareness through the fifth precept was unique, particularly in Thich Nhat Hanh's interpretation, which we will discuss in a moment. As shown in early Buddhist texts, the precepts grew to be more important and finally became a condition for membership of the Buddhist religion. Undertaking and upholding the five precepts is based on the principle of non-harming. Pali and Sanskrit terms for this is ahimsa, which is also the first of the five yamas in the Yoga Sutras. The Pali Canon, a collection of scriptures preserved in the Pali language dating primarily in the 5th or 6th century CE, recommends one to compare oneself with others, and on the basis of that, not to hurt others. Compassion and belief in karmic retribution form the foundation of the precepts. Very briefly, let me break down karma for you in the simplest terms. So, for example, let's say my boss decides not to give me a raise. If I were to intentionally pour hot coffee on my boss's lap, he may terminate me. I might be reported to the police... Or, at the very least, word would travel around the office that I wasn't a very pleasant person to work with. Karma contains the consequences within every action that we make. From the lens of karma, it doesn't matter that my boss chose not to give me a raise. What matters to me is how I responded to that situation. In this case, pouring hot coffee was not a skillful means, and certainly did not give me that raise that I wanted. In other words, karma is never about revenge. When I practice empathy, I put myself in the shoes of another person, so to speak. If I were to undertake the perspective of my boss in that scenario, I may decide a much more effective approach, one that doesn't harm either of us physically or professionally. When I practice mindfulness, I take the time necessary to consider the consequences of all possible actions rather than responding spontaneously and at the whim of my emotions. Therefore, the five precepts introduce a set of guidelines that assist us in refraining from committing actions that carry with them consequences that can create suffering 
in our own lives and the lives of others. If the concept of karma is still muddy for you, feel free to ask a question in the comments below or in our Facebook group. Okay, let's move on. Within the first of the three sections of the Pali Canon, the Vinaya Pitaka, lies a volume titled the Mahavaga, in which the Buddha ordains Yasa, the son of a wealthy merchant who becomes discontent with a life of pleasure-seeking. Does this sound familiar? And the Buddha then instructs Yasa's parents in the five precepts for lay disciples. The first precept consists of a prohibition of killing both humans and all animals. Scholars have interpreted Buddhist texts about the precepts as an opposition to and prohibition of capital punishment, suicide, abortion, and euthanasia. In practice, however, many Buddhist countries still use the death penalty, just as Christian nations typically do, despite the fifth commandment, which reads, Thou shalt not kill. In a similar fashion with regard to abortion, Buddhist countries take the middle ground by condemning, though not prohibiting it. The Buddhist attitude to violence is generally interpreted as opposing warfare, but some scholars have raised exceptions. The second precept prohibits theft. Pretty straightforward. The third precept refers to abstaining from committing adultery in all its forms and has been defined by modern teachers with terms such as sexual responsibility and long-term commitment. The fourth precept involves falsehood spoken or committed to by action, as well as malicious speech, harsh speech, and gossip. The fifth precept prohibits intoxication through alcohol, drugs, or other means. Thich Nhat Hanh also includes the aspect of mindful consumption in this precept, which consists of unhealthy food, unhealthy entertainment, and unhealthy conversations, among others. Many practitioners of the Thich Nhat Hanh lineage are well acquainted with the five mindfulness trainings. However, I encourage those who are not to click the link to them in the show notes, as Nhat Hanh's interpretation is much different in its context than in other traditions. In fact, I have come to appreciate their relevance and applicability to our modern lifestyles. In this podcast, there are three mindfulness trainings in particular that I would like to touch on. Refraining from killing, non-stealing, and abstaining from intoxicants. These are the first, second, and fifth mindfulness trainings. Nat Han names the first mindfulness training reverence for life. It begins with the following statement. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating the insight of interbeing and compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to support any act of killing in the world in my thinking or in my way of life. We see here that Nat Han is encouraging us to protect the lives of not just people, but animals, plants, and minerals as well. It's relatively easy for us to restrain ourselves from killing other human beings, 
or even animals. But an extra layer of effort here is that we are asked not to support any act of killing in our way of life. This can be very contentious as it refers to the law of supply and demand in our own modern economic system. Even by simply buying meat, I am supporting an act of killing. So, what do I do? Do I just eat celery sticks the rest of my life? Early Buddhists did not adopt a vegetarian diet, and polytexts even describe vegetarianism as irrelevant in the spiritual purification of the mind. However, in his statement to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, Natan wrote, We need to realize that the earth is not just our environment. The earth is not something just outside of us. Breathing with mindfulness and contemplating your body, you realize that you are the earth. You realize that your consciousness is also the consciousness of the earth. Look around you. What you see is not your environment. It is you. This can be difficult as we have imagined the world as something to be molded and tamed by the wits and strength of human innovation. This disharmonious perspective views nature as a mere object to be exploited and harkens back to René Descartes' philosophy of dualism. The notion that self is different from other, and that the earth and everything in it is separate from me. Have we seen the results of this Western philosophy in our culture today? When I was a teenager, I had felt an overwhelming pressure from those around me to fit society's definition of a successful citizen. With every decision that I made, I could feel the judgment behind people's eyes. Over the years, I had pushed myself so as to ensure that there was no question that I was a great provider for my family and a suitable mate. I wanted to be a winner. But what does being a winner mean in our culture? The big houses, the technologically souped-up cars, the lavish vacations to theme parks, the family photos in the grassy meadow, the 4K Ultra HD TVs with images so sharp that I could get lost in an alternate reality for an evening and not have to pay any attention to anybody. Does my story sound like an individual who lives in harmony with nature? Or someone who is so lost in his aspirations to look good that he doesn't even know that he has bought into an illusory game, all for the measly price of his own authentic self? Well, the next question may be, what exactly is the authentic self? Truthfully, I do not know how to describe it. But, when I sit on the beach and watch waves rise and fall in the ocean, or listen to the trees speak to each other as the wind rustles their leaves, or watch otters, those cute little otters, hold hands as they surf on their backs in the river, I remember. I remember where I came from. 
That's where I have found insight into interbeing. In other words, I have a human body, but it's made of non-human elements. Now stick with me. What is in the oceans, the otters, and the trees is in me. Why I'm here doesn't really matter. It never did. Does an ocean wave ever question its own existence? No. It just does what it does. It's waving. Yoo-hoo! It's the same with me. I do what humans typically do. I rush from place to place, competing against the rest of society, to accumulate and spend numbers in a digital account and buy things I don't need but pretend that I do. I act like I know what I'm doing and that everybody else is an ignorant slob. But the miracle of being human is that I can see through that merry-go-round and know that it doesn't have to be that way. If I see through the lens of compassion that my lifestyle is harming the very foundation that provides for my existence and the existence of other creatures, would I stay in that game? No. Yet, it seems more difficult for me to change the game the older I get. I even question myself. Could I be happy without all of these conveniences that my status in society has afforded me? This is where the second mindfulness training comes in, titled, fittingly, True Happiness. As it is written, I will practice looking deeply to see that the happiness and suffering of others are not separate from my own happiness and suffering. That true happiness is not possible without understanding and compassion. And that running after wealth, fame, power, and sensual pleasures can bring much suffering and despair. I'm aware that happiness depends on my mental attitude and not on external conditions. And that I can live happily in the present moment simply by remembering that I already have more than enough conditions to be happy. I am committed to practicing right livelihood so that I can help reduce the suffering of living beings on earth and stop contributing to climate change. This is not Han's interpretation of the precept of abstention from taking that which is not ours, aka theft. In truth, I have never owned anything. It may say on a piece of paper that I own a car, but I really don't. It is made of materials extracted from the earth, and given enough time, it will rot and fade away just like my own body. If I remember that I have more than enough conditions to be happy as I am, then why would I need to possess anything? If any of you have been a Christian at a younger age, or perhaps you are now, all this will sound quite familiar. In Matthew 6:19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And again, in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, take a look around you. Do we regard all things material as sacred? I mean, really. Or do we treat the material as a commodity to be bartered and exchanged for currency? So, which master do I serve? It's difficult to imagine a world without money, even though there was a time when it never existed. So, how do we serve creation, but not be caught by the pursuit of money? Or, to use that common biblical phrase, how can we be in the world, but not of it? I try to envision the outcome of my actions even beyond my own lifetime. My work, or energy, is represented by currency. When I spend that currency, I am shaping the world for future generations by creating a demand for something. What I spend my money on is what I want to see more of in the world. To consume mindfully means I can foresee the consequences, or karma, of every dollar spent and its impact on the world. This is explained in the fifth mindfulness training. It's called Nourishment and Healing. This goes beyond just refraining from consuming alcohol, in the Plum Village tradition anyway. Mindful consumption means that we must also ask ourselves, is what I'm consuming healthy for myself and the environment? Or am I just buying and eating things to cover up a source of suffering within me? To do the latter would be merely temporary happiness, not true happiness. And when we consume without mindfulness, chances are, we're probably causing harm to someone or something else indirectly. For example, when I buy a product that contains palm oil as an ingredient, I'm saying that it's okay for companies to chop down the rainforest in Indonesia and drive out the orangutan population to make room for more palm tree crops. I just don't know that's what is happening. Because it doesn't happen in front of my face. Now we can see how the first, second, and fifth mindfulness trainings are tied together. In light of the wisdom offered in both Christianity and Buddhism, the Iron Thread Village community decided to become earth holders just this year. In most Buddhist traditions, a bodhisattva is considered an individual who has the capability to reach nirvana, but has delayed doing so out of compassion, so that he or she may save other beings from suffering. Thich Nhat Hanh once translated a bodhisattva as a Dharanimdara, or protector of the earth, also known as a earth holder. The Earthholder community was created in the United States in 2015 as an affinity group within the Plum Village tradition founded by Thich Nhat Hanh. 
The community's purpose is to bring like-minded members together who work to preserve this planet for living beings by taking care of the air, water, and soil. This may mean practicing right livelihood by choosing to live more sustainably. And it could also entail utilizing right action to bring awareness to citizens through public demonstrations. Now these demonstrations don't have to include yelling through a megaphone or lighting cars on fire, but rather group meditations in a public setting, whether that be walking, sitting, or standing together. For one to become an earth holder, you simply take six pledges. One, I will study, observe, and practice the five and 14 mindfulness trainings. Two, I will move in the direction of more simple and compassionate living by signing onto the Earth Peace Treaty and committing to transform three unwholesome habits. Three, I will eat a plant-based diet at least one day per week. That's easy, no? Four, I will participate in at least one Earthholder global call to action per year. Five, I will introduce at least one Earthholder guideline to my individual or local community practice. Six, I will attend the semi-annual Earthholder community conference calls and participate in community decision making. Whew, this may sound like a lot of responsibility. But it really isn't. The conference calls are easy as long as you have access to the Zoom app. I have listened to them even while I was driving. Not that I would encourage that, of course, but that's how easy it is to participate. The three commitments for transforming unwholesome habits for me is the real meat and potatoes of this practice. There is a large list of these to choose from, some of which are much easier than others. I started with something as simple as taking the stairs instead of the elevator. And then after two months of ingraining this into my psyche as a habit, I then picked another commitment from the list. By encouraging change at the individual level through habitual actions, I believe we can make a huge difference in how we, as human beings, impact the planet. Even when I do certain things and people notice it and ask me why, I tell them that it is my way of protecting the planet. Will there be people who think I'm a weirdo? Yeah, sure. But there will also be people who feel inspired by what I do. And it can create a snowball effect. I'll share this list of habitual changes in the show notes for those who are interested in some of these ideas. Who knows? You may find that you can implement some of these into your own life. And I have also found that having the support of fellow practitioners who can encourage and motivate me to keep finding new and creative ways to live sustainably helps me stay in the game and true to my goals. And that, brothers and sisters, is what the Iron Thread Village is all about and why we are Earth Holders. Please remember to leave your questions in the Iron Thread Village Facebook page so that we can address them on a future podcast. If you wish to remain anonymous, you can. Please, private message me, Zach Richards, and simply state that you would rather not have your name announced on the podcast if that is your wish. Iron Thread Village meets every third Friday of the month, and I will post events on 
the Meetup page, and Facebook page, along with gatherings with our sister communities here in the greater Phoenix area. Next month, I will be discussing the Heart Sutra, one of the most important texts in Mahayana Buddhism, and also one of the most confusing. So, see you next month, everyone. Take care.